Welcome back to STEM Fatale, your women in science history podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Emlyn Gremlin. And I'm your other co-host, Dr. Emma Dilemma. How's it going? Um, it's going good, Emlyn. You know, the weather's cooling down here. It feels kind of nice, but I'm also, you know, I always mourn the end of summer. Mm-hmm. Um but celebrate the beginning of fall. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's good. I think, I feel like everybody's clinging to fall because it's a change. And Mm -hmm. I'm definitely clinging to it. Like this is going to, 2020 has been a dumpster fire, but fall, fall's coming and it's going to save everything. Uh, Something about (laughs) fall will be different. (laughs) Something, please. We need it. We we need it. Fall. (laughs) If you can hear us, please save us. Send your leaves down upon me, fall. (laughs) (laughs) Like praying to the fall gods. Yes. Oh, man. (laughs) All right. Well, let's, let's get in this. Yeah. I'm ready. So, Emlyn, today I'm going to tell you about the woman who was a major key or founder in China's computer science industry. Oh, all right. Do you know who this woman is? Absolutely not. <laughs> I am excited I to learn, though. Like, I might have seen her on the, the I, webs. I don't know. You know what? I'd never seen her on the web in any of the lists of like women and science you should know, which is crazy because I don't know. I found it very weird, but I think part of it is because she was very, she really developed computer technology in China Mm. for China. Gotcha. So I don't think people in the u.s or anywhere in the west might even know about Mm -hmm. anyway no i was gonna say i also think those lists that are like the 10 women you should know are like okay there's not 10 there's like come on yeah right there's a million there's a million but it's yeah and they're typically very western yes yeah i mean just because that's who's writing it, and that's who we hear about mm-hmm. over here, you know? Yeah. So, okay. So today, I'll be telling you about Jia Pei-Su. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, much of this info comes from a BBC Future article by, guess who? <laughs> our our favorite lady, Lady Psy pod? Yeah, Layla McNeil. She's everywhere, Layla. I know. <laughs> she writes all of the best articles about women in science history. She really does. And also about, you know, people who aren't well known, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. So She's really good at finding that information and doing that research. I think our um, podcast, I don't anyway. know if our podcast could exist without Layla. Yeah. Like, if we'd have. We ever. <laughs> 
if anyone ever offered us ads or something, we could just raise money and give it to Layla. <laughs> like, Thank you, Layla. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. So, Jia was born on July 28th, 1923 in southeastern China in the municipality of Chongqing. And her parents were both uh, supportive of her obtaining an education, so she attended school or home tutoring throughout her whole childhood. So, you know, we're off to a good yeah, start. Yeah, I loved I love to see it. Pro education. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when she graduated high school in 1940, she was at the top of her class and um meanwhile, China was in the middle of the second Sino-Japanese War which was the largest Asian war in the 20th century and is what some scholars consider to be a start of World War II. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so this war had begun in 1937. So at that time, um, Jia was, let's see, 14 years old. And um, it started because Japan you know, was continually invading different Chinese cities. And by the end of that war, about 10 to 25 million Chinese civilians had been killed by Japanese soldiers or, like, during the war, essentially. That's so many. Um, yeah. And so you've probably heard about incidents or battles from this war, mm-hmm. like the Marco Polo Bridge incident, the Nanjing Massacre, and the Battle of Wuhan. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, a lot of casualties in this war. And during this time, the U.S. supported China in their efforts to to defeat Japan, um, especially after Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. So, yeah, you often hear about, like, the start of World War II is when Germany invaded poland i think yeah or something like that but um but some scholars consider this war which started in 1937 to be another another start of world war ii mm-hmm. no i do yeah. think we also have like a pretty western yeah centric view of world war ii where i mostly think yeah. about it in terms of europe but right it was yeah, europe was and asia huge- yeah, huge war going on kind of concurrently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for Jia, this all resulted in her hometown, Chongqing, becoming a common place for refugee resettlement from Nanjing mm-hmm. and other parts of China. And so this included the movement of the National Central University, which Jia would join as a student in 1941 to study electrical engineering. And it included the movement of a person. Ooh. <laughs> this is like my worst transition ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, a person, Yang Li Ming, who was a recent graduate of National Central University and now a professor or I'm guessing more of a lecturer of physics at the university. Okay. So the university um, moved because it was... Yeah, it moved from Nanjing because Nanjing had been destroyed gotcha. by the Japanese, essentially. Okay. 
Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so the university moved, and so did this recent graduate, Yang. And at the school, Yang and Jia met and began a relationship. So, How old is Jia? Fell, fell in love. She is 20, 19 or 18. She's 18. Okay. I She's will. just starting college. He just graduated from college. All right. I will accept it. Yeah, so I that's why I was like calling him professor makes it sound weird because I think he was probably just teaching a course yeah. right after he graduated yeah. or something. However, they were both focused intensely on their studies. So when Shia graduated in 1945 or 46, she began she began graduate school at the Jiatong University in Shanghai. While Yang moved to Edinburgh, uh, the University of Edinburgh, to study with Nobel laureate Max Born. In the UK? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, however, they would not be apart for long, as Xia eventually joined Yang in Edinburgh, where she enrolled as a doctoral student in electrical engineering. Nice. Nice. So he was doing a postdoc there, essentially, with this famous physician, uh, physicist, not physician, <laughs> um, yeah, where she went to pursue her PhD. Um, for her PhD, she has studied two main things. One is the parametric oscillations in electronic circuits. Uh-huh. And <laughs> two is the graphical analysis for nonlinear systems. Okay. All right. Uh, I don't, you know, I didn't try to read her dissertation. I, you know, I was just. Excuse all, me? This is not my forte. You <laughs> did not back. read her full <laughs> dissertation? <laughs> However, in the BBC Future article, <laughs> moving on, uh, it, it says that in these studies, she created methodologies that would accurately predict variations in frequency and amplitude within electronic systems, which is essentially research that would eventually impact the development of TVs and radios and other um, frequency-based, like, electronic devices. Yeah. Yeah. So, pretty cool. Yeah. While I don't understand exactly what she studied... The applications seem to be pretty, you know, far-reaching. How can I watch my Survivor without it? Yes, precisely. You need to learn survival methods at this day and age. (laughs) Okay. When she graduated in 1950, she and Yang married and decided to move back to China, where they both started working at the Tsinghua University. I think she was a postdoc. I'm not quite sure what his position was, okay. but they're both researchers gotcha. there. Oh, no. she. Yeah, she started as a postdoc. I think she would become a professor pretty fast. I don't That's know. the dream. That part, I was, it was like very rapid. Anyway. <sighs> At this time, 1950, so this is post-World War II, um, China was now being run by the... Chinese Communist Party, okay, mm-hmm. which was 
you know, not the party the U.S. and other capitalist countries had been supporting yes. through World War II, but was the party who essentially won during the Chinese Civil War, which had begun before World War II, taken a hiatus during <laughs> World War II, and then continued after World War II oh, until 1949. Yeah. So this was part of Chinese history that I wasn't even aware mm-hmm. of. Essentially fighting with the Japan, with themselves, and then, you know, with the world. Yeah. It's crazy. So given this newfound lack of support from countries like the U.S., the Chinese government um, reached out to the Soviet Union to become allies, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So that it could begin rebuilding the country after, you know, what was essentially decades of war. (sighs) And part of this rebuild was an effort to catch up with the U.S. and other countries and technology, where the U.S. had really, during World War II, become a leader in tech and in computing um, specifically and like nuclear technology, Mm -hmm. of course. And so this spurred the founding of a computer research group at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. Um, Hua Lo Gang, who's a famous mathematician, was put in charge of this group. And he picked Jia and two other members to essentially found the research um, for the computer research group. Nice. In... 1956, the Chinese Communist Party signed a 12-year plan with the Soviet Union in which they outlined a long-term protocol for developing national sciences and technology, especially computing technology, as this would help bolster China's national defense. So the Soviet Union was pretty crucial in the beginning stages of China's sort of rebuilding Other countries had already developed computers, like we've discussed in sort of the, in the Grace Hopper episode, the first electronic computer, the ENIAC, was built in 1945, and, you know, Grace Hopper had developed the first computer language, the COBOL, in 1953, that's just getting our Grace Hopper history in there. (laughs) Um, Go check out the app. Yeah, so China really needed to play some catch-up if they wanted to compete with these other world powers. So Xia was a perfect person to lead the charge in the development of China's computer science industry because she had formal background in both electronics and mathematics. And a few years after its founding, she was actually the only founding member that remained in the group. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the others had essentially just left to continue different lines of research or had gone to different university, but she stayed on in this computer research group. So in 1956, she visited the Soviet Union to learn more about their computing research and development. She proceeded to translate computer design texts from English or Russian to Chinese, including a 1,000-page manual that would become the primary educational material used in Chinese computing classes. 
That sounds um, important, and- but not fun. Yeah, and this was no small feat, considering how many specific terms uh-huh. or new words are sort of made up in the sciences. Yep. So she had to basically create new vocabulary in Chinese hmm. mm-hmm. to to do these translations. That's cool. Yeah, and so... Given that many of the terms still used today in Chinese computing fields were created by Jia in the 1950s, hmm. which is pretty crazy. Yeah, that's awesome. Think of like just inventing vocabulary. Soon after, she began teaching computer theory at the Chinese Academy of Sciences, Institute of Mathematics and Physics, and this was China's first ever class on computer theory. And she established an institute of computer technology. Um, and she also worked to develop large computer science courses for training Chinese students in computer technology at the University of Science and Technology of China. So then from 1956 to 1962, the courses she designed trained over 700 students across the country some of whom would become leading computer scientists in China in later years. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot of students to Yeah. That's awesome. So, she is credited with being one of the founders of China's computer industry, mm-hmm. not only because of her contributions to China's computer technology, which I'll discuss more in a second, but because of her sort of single-handed development of this training program. During this time, Xia was also researching and developing electronic computers. For example, she worked on improving computer algorithms and specifically researched how to enhance computer processing speed and transmission signaling. So this is where I was like, hmm... Do I figure out the details <laughs> of the day-to-day of this? Yeah. Or is that going to take us somewhere that we don't want to be? So complicated, we'll never come back out of it. Yep. So I said no. Yeah. That's, that's good enough. <laughs> Sorry, listeners, if you're a computer scientist and need those deets. Um, Go find them for so, yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can look it up. These things are out there if you want more info. So by 1959, China had successfully replicated Soviet designs to make two electronic computers. But soon after they did this, the Chinese-Soviet relationship fell apart. Not really because of this, but um, essentially by this time, China had become more powerful mm-hmm. and was becoming a threat to Soviet rule of kind of the communist countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, so the Soviet Union withdrew support of, yeah, withdrew support for all these like initiatives that they had begun in China, which is, so weird to me that they would try to help and then be like, wait, 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 no, no, you can't be better than us. Yeah, like, we want to help you so that they- you're good-ish and can help us, but we don't want you to surpass us. 
Right. Which is just really weird to me, but whatever. <laughs> I mean, I get it, but at the same time, it's just like, you didn't see this as a potential? <laughs> you know, it's strange. We don't have a good long-term so sh- strategy. Yeah. I mean, I know it's like obviously more complicated yeah. than I'm making it out to be too, but even still. So without support from the Soviet Union, many expected that China's computer tech industry would not take off. But they were wrong because, <laughs> yeah. yeah, all of these people, I mean, we obviously know this now, but... Spoiler. Um, yeah, but there were all these trainees now that knew how to use computers um, and build computers. And then there were people that were interested in doing that, mm-hmm. so... So Jia herself had already begun working on the design and development of a new type of computer. And in 1960, this computer, the Model 107, um, was debuted. And this was China's first independently designed electronic computer. Cool. So she, yeah, she designed their first computer, basically. That's very awesome. Kind of crazy. Yeah. So, to describe the Model 107, I'm going to use just a long quote from an article by (laughs) Qi Wei in the Science China Press, just because it's just a lot of facts about it. Um, So, the 107 machine is a small serial universal electronic tube digital computer. Yeah. Which adopts von Neumann architecture... (laughs) Binary fixed point 32 bit word length. The magnetic core memory capacity is 1024 bytes. The machine can perform 16 operations. Receive, send, receive one's compliment, not compliment. <laughs> no, no. Uh, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, you're so beautiful. <laughs> you are as well. Um, it can do logical addition, logical multiplication, shift, addition, overflow nonstop addition, like what? <laughs> Subtraction, multiplication, division, unconditional transfer, conditional transfer, non-zero transfer, printing, and shutdown. <laughs> anyway, I just found this list like funny. No, I do I do think like computers have changed so much like that seems like oh that's all it does but that was huge at the time yeah it's just like thinking and these were huge yeah right oh yeah physically huge computers yeah like a freaking entire room i mean i think at this point they were probably smaller but like the mark one and things like that were a giant room True. These were electronic computers, mm-hmm. so they were a little bit definitely smaller. I'm, I am glad that they're very um, polite and do receive compliments well. That yeah. is just, that's good. <laughs> receive one's compliments. <laughs> so this is also translated. So, uh, you know, take that, you know, with a grain of salt, mm-hmm. some of the grammar, but... <laughs> Okay, and the let's see some other details. The main frequency of the machine is sixty-two point five kilohertz. Um, during the machine tests in April night, April nineteen sixty, the continuous 
trouble-free working time was 20 hours and 30 minutes. Like, wow. And usually the machine can be turned on and off at any time, like an electronic instrument, which was not possible with other electronic tube computers at that time. So (laughs) how did you turn them on? (laughs) I don't know. Um, All right. I'm guessing maybe that means with a button or versus you have to do a bunch of switches or something like that. Or maybe some you like had to keep on, like you couldn't just turn it off when you weren't using it. Right. Yeah, that's true. It could be that. We could speculate all day. Yeah. So anyway, that was the Model 107 that she had designed and done most of the research for, which is pretty cool. That's very cool. I can't imagine just designing a computer, you know, like pretty weird. Absolutely not. Okay, so this new computer soon underwent reproduction and distribution for use in classrooms around the country. And meanwhile, she had continued her research in computer design and continued training the next generation of computer scientists. In 1978, Xia founded the Chinese Journal of Computers and the Journal of Computer Science and Technology, which was the first English-language computer science journal in China. So that would allow... um you know, people in their field in China to disseminate their research more broadly, Mm -hmm. of course, which is good. In 1981, Xia developed the 150 AP, which was a high-speed processor array, which boosted a computer speed from 10,000 jobs a second to 20 million jobs (laughs) per second. Yeah. Just like, yeah. I'm sort of, like, skipping around, like, just because, yeah, she did, I think she did a lot of research between inventing that first computer and then this high-speed processor Mm -hmm. array, but it's all sort of, I think, was part of a bigger research group, though it's really hard to tell precisely what she was doing during those years, yeah. So, anyway, this processor was really important because um, I think similar things had been developed in the United States. However, at the time, the U.S. had imposed like sanctions or embargoes on China where China could not access uh, American technologies. Like they wouldn't sell high-speed computing technology to China gotcha. mm-hmm. in the 80s. Yeah. yeah. So having someone like her to develop these things independently in their country mm-hmm. was crucial. very, yeah, crucial for their whole tech industry. And this processor specifically was used in petroleum exploration oh. because it increased the processing speed of seismic data. Oh, cool. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I guess that would tell you, like, where to drill for oil and when, you know. Okay. So let's see. I already talked about that. Okay. 
After this, Xia continued to improve China's independently operated computer industry. In the late 80s, she helped develop a series of computers called the GF10s, um, which were functional distributed computers, which means that different parts of the computer are used for different functions. Okay. Yeah, I tried to look up <laughs> computer history to see where these things stand, yeah. but everything was all about Intel, HP, again, like American technology. Yeah. So I really had a hard time t- comparing her developments with those of the West, mm-hmm. which were always a few years pre- like prior, I think. Yeah. But... um. But they also had so much more money to develop those things and support. So, yeah. And in any case, she's helping China keep up with the West, you know, basically her whole mm-hmm. life. Um, so she also trained many graduate students over the course of her career, uh, over 60 students. Wow. And encouraged them to work on two main types of projects. One was the development and application of high-performance computers, and two was the design of very large-scale integrated circuits. And she strongly believed that if China did not develop these technologies independently, that they would be controlled by other countries. And this was a concept she continually shared with her students and like kind of ingrained in a lot of them. In 1991, she and her husband were admitted to the Chinese Academy of Sciences. Um, He was a pretty famous physicist, even though I don't talk about him much. I think he had a very successful science career of his own. Nor should you. (laughs) It's not about him. It's not about him. Um, by this time, they had also had two sons, which I didn't read much about them or when they were born, I, and I didn't look it up. But one would go on to become a computer scientist, nice. and one would go on to become a physicist. So kind of like one followed mom's mm-hmm. path and one followed dad's path, which is kind of cute. Yeah. According to one of her long-term mentees, she has spent the rest of her career learning and advising. She did not pay much attention to administrative duties or fame or fortune and was always focused on research. Um, And some of her students have gone on to invent things that were competitive with Western technologies, uh, you know, basically starting in the early 2000s, I believe, maybe the late 90s. So, for example, she mentored a student who eventually started a supercomputer company called Sugan, and she mentored the creator of Long Soon, oh, sorry, Lung San, which is a company that designs general purpose central processing units or CPUs. Mm-hmm. And he named his first processing chip of China's first CPU computer. The GF fifty. Aw, I like um, that. In celebration of her fifty-year-long career in two thousand two. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, in the late nineties and early two thousands, she has spent quite a bit of time taking care of her husband, who had developed a brain tumor. Oh, no. 
And she actually suffered a heart attack during this time, but survived it. Um, after her husband passed away in 2002, she continued working and teaching, but was never quite, you know, up to speed in terms of her early, like, inventions and developments. But I think she was still mentoring students Mm -hmm. until, um, she, like, for most of that time. And then she passed away in 2014 at the age of 91. Wow. Yeah, which is... Pretty, yeah, she lived a really long life. Yeah, and that is the story of Gia Pesu. That's really interesting. Which I wish, yeah, I really wish there was more about her research, but I just, like, it's really hard to find, well, especially because I think most texts about her are not in English. It's so hard for me to search for information Mm -hmm. about her. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I'm sure there's a lot about her, like, in In Chinese. Yeah. Yeah. And I I wonder if part of the reason why we don't hear that much about her is because she seems like such an integral part of China's becoming a world power, actually. Like, I think... Right. You know, they are dominating a lot of the computer... Uh, game and like I think that's really advanced them in terms of being a world power and so I wonder if us western centric people don't really want like don't include her in a lot of things because it's like oh well she helped like China become this world power and we're like we don't really want to talk about that yeah I think it could be that I think it could also be because she wasn't the first mm-hmm. worldwide to do a lot of these things, right? Yeah. So, you know, we always sort of celebrate the first computer, the first this. And a lot of Western technologies, while she was working, were the first. Yeah. But she was like just this main figure in keeping China like right up to speed with the U.S., so that once, you know, trade embargoes were lifted mm-hmm. and information embargoes, China really was ready yeah. to just speed ahead um, because she had kept them independently producing technologies for so long. You know, they weren't behind yeah. at any point, really. So, yeah. So I think that could be part of it, too. It's just she's not as celebrated because yeah she's not wasn't part of our tech industry Mm -hmm. exactly yeah she didn't advance things for us right exactly um yeah but it is a very interesting just thinking of all the people she trained and like setting up basically like education for computer science in china yeah. is like pretty crazy yeah that's pretty so. like monumental yeah yeah if you think about her overall impact it's pretty intense mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> on just <laughs> yeah it's which is strange to think that like someone in their lifetime had like a pretty like decent impact and was inventing things and whatever. But yeah, to think of how that 
led to who they are now mm-hmm. or who the country mm-hmm. is now. You know, yeah, it's like a rippling here. effect of all this tr- all yeah. the students she trained and then how that's shaped right. like the modern industry of China. It's power of education. Power of education. Women rocking it as per usual. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I love that. That was awesome. I had never heard of her, and I yeah, should have. crazy. That's awesome. Right. Should we work it? Work, 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 work. All right. This is our Women Who Work section, where we give shout-outs to badass ladies making history today. Um, and so my shout-out this week goes to Dr. Jane Greaves of Cardiff University in the UK and her co-authors mm. for her paper published in Nature Astronomy, uh, I think well, maybe even this week, it was like the 13th or 14th, um, entitled, oh, nice. quote, Phosphine Gas in the Cloud Decks of Venus. Whoa. All right. So. So many words. I think I know the word cloud and gas. Yeah. So Aliens. Yes. Life on another planet. Oh, yes. Likely, if there is life on another planet, it's some type of microbial life. Probably not aliens with big heads or um, creepy eyes. Green. Yeah, probably not green. Well, it could could be be. green or gray microbes, but probably not full-fledged, you know, (laughs) humanoid-looking creatures. (laughs) But without stepping foot on other planets, um, and without, you know, aliens writing some type of SOS sign for us to see, how would we even know if there was life on another planet? Great question. Are you asking me? (laughs) No, it was, you know, unless you have, unless you have an answer. No, no, no. I think I'll leave it to the experts. Excellent. Okay. Well, a previous paper by the expert astrophysicist, Dr. Clara Sousa Silva, who's also part of this paper that just came out, she suggested um, that the existence of phosphine gas in another planet's atmosphere would be a good biosignature or a chemical signature of life. So essentially, anaerobic microbes on Earth that live in like smelly places like sewage, swamps, and the intestinal tracts of animals, including us. Um, So these anaerobic places all host these anaerobic microbes, uh, which are the only known life forms on Earth to produce phosphine. Um, And for that matter, besides industrial plants that make like plastic and use you know, really bizarre chemical processes. Um, There are no abiotic ways to make phosphine. Oh, that's interesting. If you see phosphine, it's produced by an an organism, not by some, like, volcanic process or lightning or anything like that. Yeah. And so they... um, They suggest that if you see phosphine on other planets, that's a really a strong sign that there could be microbial life on that planet because we wouldn't be able to explain the phosphine otherwise. Yeah. I wonder how do they, 
how do the microbes produce phosphine? Like, do they understand that process? Or I, mean, I think they, so. I don't. Yeah, I can't yeah. tell you about that. Gotcha. But I think, I think the chemical yeah. process by which they do that is understood. Cool. But that chemical process doesn't happen outside of organisms. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So, in this recent paper by Dr. Jane Greaves and her colleagues, they were interested in using phosphine gas as this biosignature to look for life in exoplanets, so planets outside of our solar system. Wow. However, um, first they needed to kind of hone their instruments. So, they use telescopes and they look at, like, absorption spectra and, like, certain wavelengths, if they're absorbed, like, phosphine has a certain wavelength that it absorbs. And so you can then tell, based on the spectra, um, what kind of elements are in the atmosphere in these far-off locations. That's so cool. But they So they wanted to ta- t- um, test this in a more local system, so they looked to Venus to try to hone their instruments. They assumed that Venus wouldn't have any phosphine. Gas, And so they wanted to determine kind of like what would be the signature in um, on a on a planet that didn't have any phosphine gas. So kind of the the lower limit. Yeah. So they could kind of know what to expect. They what they found was that there seemed to be strong signatures of phosphine gas on Venus. And so I don't really think about Venus very much, but Venus is our one of our neighboring planets. And. Mm -hmm. Um, it can be described as a beautiful hellscape. Right. <laughs> so it has sulfuric acid rain, crushing atmospheric pressures. Um, but about 50 kilometers above the surface are these hospitable conditions, these like cloud decks. Whoa. And so within the cloud decks, they found these high levels of phosphine oh. gas. Oh, so there's maybe microbes. Wait, would that mean there's microbes in the clouds or that the microbe gas is collected by the clouds? My, from my reading, I think they think that they're in the cloud decks if Whoa. there are microbes. That's crazy. Um, I'm not positive about that. Yeah. It could be that they would be on the surface, but then the gas would rise. But I think yeah, the interpretation that. is that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when they're looking at Venus, they found this strong signature of phosphine in the cloud decks of Venus, and this was really unexpected. And so they did a lot of backup tests and used other microsco- uh, other telescopes in Chile to make sure that they were actually seeing this signature of phosphine. Wow. The, the authors kind of intensely go about ruling out other sources of the phosphine gas, yeah. So, like, you know, lightning couldn't cause it, earthquakes couldn't cause it, other geochemical processes that we know of shouldn't cause it. Um, so they're not saying that it is, like, extraterrestrial life, but that right now the source of phosphine, the only explanation that we have is extraterrestrial, probably microbial life. Right. But that... Um, or the other option is it's some chemical process that doesn't occur on Earth that we've never experienced. 
So either way, either if it's extraterrestrial life or this new chemical process that we don't really understand, both would be very interesting and novel findings. Yeah. But it is a strong indicator that it could be extraterrestrial life on Venus. So cool. I really um, love, I feel like we get, we get these stories a lot where there's just a creative new way of I know measuring something that's like, we could have done it before, but just nobody thought of it or, or you know? Yeah, no, yeah. it's, yeah, it's very, it's very interesting when, when people come up with new new methods that are kind of within they're not like new technologies they're new new ways of approaching yeah, the problem exactly. yeah but yeah so i think either way it's going to be fascinating but what it what this result this these are like a huge this is a huge result yeah um people it's like the talk of the town yeah essentially. I, I definitely heard people talking about discovery of life on venus or microbes mm-hmm. um but i didn't Real, I didn't read about the details of what that evidence was. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah, so even though Venus is our neighboring planet, the conditions are so harsh that it's seemed unrealistic right. to send missions or unmanned probes there. That's why we've been going yeah. and doing a lot of stuff on Mars because it seemed more hospitable. But this new evidence um, that there could be microbial life on Venus has kind of... Uh, change the attitude of scientists um, rethinking whether or not there's ways for us to actually take, you know, send up an unmanned probe or something like that to Venus to try to get to see if we can get more evidence of either microbial life or understanding what this potential chemical process is that could create phosphine gas. Yeah, that would be weird if it was... A non-biological process where it only occurs biologically on Earth. Yes. Yeah. So I think either way, it's um, like very controversial. People have a lot of opinions about it. You know, it could go either way, but it's very exciting. And I think there's going to be a lot more research focusing on this uh, going forward. Yeah. So that's my shout out. I love that. Yeah. Aliens. (laughs) Maybe. <laughs> Who knows? It's so weird to call like a microbe. I know. An alien, I know. You know, because yeah. it's just not what you picture, but it would be no. an alien life form. Yeah. So cool. <sighs> so yeah. So that that was my shout out. Love it. Yeah. Well, Luna is my dog is trying to break into my studio. My studio. Quote my studio. <laughs> studio. My bedroom. <laughs> so we should probably wrap this yeah, up. Yeah, I got to go lunch. Ooh. Get on with the day. Indeed. So <laughs> thanks, everybody, for tuning in. If yeah. you like this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, share it. Um, we always appreciate um, some interactions on Twitter or whatnot. It makes our day. Also, thanks to Caitlin Friesen for our awesome art and to Artichoke for our theme music. And please... Go, please, please, with you to go, go, stimulate yourself. (laughs) (laughs) All right, bye.